This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to the Devin Kershaw Show from Faster Skier. In this episode, a midweek episode, no races to cover, we do our first mailbag. So over the past uh, couple months since the race season started, we've been re- we have been receiving some emails or email questions from listeners, and we take the opportunity to answer some. Okay, here's the show. Hey, Devin, how are you? I'm good. Midweek here. Uh... Didn't have to go into Oslo today on the train, so I feel pretty good about that. <laughs> and it's uh, and it's a beautiful, beautiful day. It was a beautiful day in Little Homer, I have to say. It was one out classic skiing this morning after studying uh, integrals and calc two for a couple hours and some redox reactions in my chemistry course, and then enjoyed some amazing skiing in Little Homer. So it's all time. I don't know if if people are thinking about traveling to Little Homer or Shushin, now's the time. It's it's uh, it's amazing. Well, not so so no golf ball. Or ping pong ball? <laughs> no, no, no. It, no, no ping pong ball today. It was blue skies, sunny, and it snowed probably like just about five centimeters in town here. But like up in the mountains, up in Shushan and everything, maybe 10, 15 centimeters. There's so much snow on the trees. It was that that low light of of Scandinavia. It was really pretty. Okay, and what was kicking for you? I had universal clister with uh, multi grade on top. I've got a lot of th- like roadie multi grade. So I've like, you know what for the. For someone that's training, there is not many waxes that you need. So maybe that can be a listener question later on when we do this again. But but I mean, I've got some ideas on like how many waxes you need for kick wax because it's not that many and people shouldn't be intimidated because my skis were absolutely lit today. Okay. And you're talking like multi-grade, like that violet little canister roadie oh, multi-grade. Yeah. Yes. Kick wax, roadie kick wax. And then... Um, that has a strong reputation here in Bend. Yeah. Well, it's it's you know what I think Rody Multigrade could be the absolute best kick wax ever made. I'd like to hear what people think, but I honestly it's because it's also the right temperature, right? Like it's zero to minus two, that's what it says on the canister, but like really it works like minus three, minus four. And I mean Celsius, I'm talking Celsius for everyone in the US, but but I mean that's kind of like that's like classic skiing prime time. If it gets way cold, it's not that fun on the downhills, you know, and if it's too warm, then you have to start messing around with clister and everything. So yeah, no, it's hard to beat. Okay. So let's jump into some questions. So this week, um, or midweek here, we are going to kind of jump into the mailbag of questions that we've received over the past month or so. Um, some of, some of the questions we've already answered in earlier episodes, but we're going to kind of jump in here. This is great. I think it's awesome that we're doing a listener mailbag. I think, for those that are expecting email responses right away, uh, like every podcast that does listener mailbags like we're doing, uh, <laughs> we suck, let's be honest. There's a lot going on, blah, blah, blah. You know all the excuses. The reality is emails and inboxes are just a wormhole of disaster. So we're going to try and do some of these listener mailbags once in a while just to answer some of the questions that come in. And of course, we will try and answer people back on their email, but it might not be within 30 minutes of you sending the email. So thanks for your patience and hopefully you guys enjoy this episode here. Yeah, I'm going to jump right in here. I'm going to ask this question. You live in Norway and this is a question from a guy named Jeff. And he he writes, I would like to hear more about how athletes who have received doping bans are received on the circuit and whether athletes favor much harsher penalties since the presence of tainted athletes directly impacts their livelihoods. And... Uh, he references Yohog specifically, who received uh, an 18 month ban for, you know, a steroid. There, w- there was a, a banned steroid in her lip balm. We won't get into the weeds with that. But 
let's just general answer that kind of general question: How athletes who have received doping bans are received on the circuit? I, I, this this question comes up a lot. I mean, it's filling my inbox as well, uh, too. And yeah, you're right. It's hard not to get too deep into the weeds, but the reality is on the circuit. I would say by and large athletes are for like the athletes that I interact have interacted with in the bigger teams and what gets discussed between athletes strict bans seem to be the only way <laughs> that anything's going to get done or anything's going to change or at least that's what most people think and really for really serious doping infractions I think the 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 feeling is if it's like absolutely sure that you cheated maliciously with a banned substance that is highly illegal something like epo uh blood transfusions like we saw in seifeld last year or not blood transfusions sorry uh, blood doping uh spinning blood and then and then uh injecting uh yeah <laughs> red blood cells into your into your veins the night before a race those sorts of things most athletes really would like to see life bans with uh with infractions like that because i mean it, you're right it does affect everybody and we just don't need that in sport. You don't need that in sport. Get them out. But to in, to talk about Yohug's case specifically, there's there is a lot of confusion. And I, if you're really into it, you can read the CAS, um, the judgment that that CAS published or surrounding Therese Yohug, and they ruled that while <laughs> you weren't maliciously cheating and you weren't doing this on purpose the stuff that was in that lip cream that she put on her lips and was a anabolic steroid. And that is classified as uh, the, at the same level as EPO or blood doping. And therefore she had a very strict penalty that she had to take my personal feelings on it. And of course, these are my own feelings and you have to take all this with a grain of salt, right? Because uh, my wife is Kristen Storm and so one of Teresa's best friends. So I'm, I'm, I'm really tight with Teresa as well. So I'm biased, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But I really believe what Teresa has had to say the whole time. We actually, the Canadian national team was at a training camp in Livigno when this whole thing was happening. Yeah. And so we oh, saw okay. Teresa's lips there. And we're not talking about like one little cold sore. You see, you see Heidi Vang and, and Teresa Hug every once in a while have cold sores that, yeah, that happens when you're just training like crazy and your, your body's run down and you're tired. This is not what we're talking about. Like the, 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 I've never seen her lips this bad in my life. Her whole bottom lip was just a disaster. And yeah, I remember those, th I mean, yeah. massive cracks in her lips. No, like it was horrendous. Yeah. yeah. And she was at an altitude camp. That doesn't help right. exactly. Like you have this, you have the, the hot, the the, not hot sun, but like the UV just coming through the Alps and crushing your face. So, um, and there was huge failures. Yes. Are there questions surrounding it in a sense that like, how could a doctor make a mistake like he made to give her a cream that was banned? These are questions I'll never be able to answer. And I think most people will never be able to answer. The doctor has, takes the responsibility himself. Uh, he made a, a horrendous mistake and Teresa, of course, takes responsibility and has served that responsibility with the ban by not being more proactive in checking what it was. But at the same time, you know, <laughs> it's a cream, right? I think most athletes or most people at home, we like to think that we check everything super closely and diligently and absolutely people do now. But at the time, if you're having, you're dealing with something that's so painful like that and your team doctor gives you a cream and says, put this on your lips and it should help. I mean, I'd like to think I would check every single time, but I've never been in that situation, so it's hard to know, right? So, but at the soap, to go on, how is Therese Yohug received? She's received 
great on the World Cup. The reason being is most athletes look at that situation and say, this whole thing was a bit of a circus and a bit ridiculous, <laughs> to be honest. The, did she deserve to serve a ban? You know what? If we want to live in a world like we live in, where people do cheat and come up with stories and lie, yes, I'm sorry. She had to serve some sort of ban because if you're found with anabolic steroids in your, in your body, and even if it's trace amounts, uh, there has to be some sort of penalty there because it's just, if not, it, it, it'll be ripe for, for abuse. Um, but by and large, the athletes on the World Cup don't see Therese Johag as a doper or a cheater. Because if you read that cast filing, and lots have, and there's been summaries on that, there's been some good summaries, especially in the Norwegian media, of course, because Therese Johag's so huge. It, you know, even cast doesn't think that she did this to be a better ski racer, you know? And and I I get frustrated, and also other athletes. It's not just myself, and it's not just the Norwegian ski team. It's other athletes I've discussed with my teammates, the Americans, other other people in the World Cup, some Swedes. Um, people like to compare what happened with Therese Johag to what happens with with Polterainen, or or with um, the, especially with the Finns that happened in two thousand one. And all I can say is pulling out a syringe, jamming it full of drugs, putting that syringe and in, injecting it into your veins to cheat, to ski faster by putting needles in your arms and injecting banned substances or like swallowing down a whole bunch of pills to be a better skier is something very different than having a lip that is just absolutely heinous and putting some cream on it that a doctor gave you. And that's what I'll say about that. I mean, Teresa Yohug's well-received because... By and large, people don't think that she did it maliciously. That said, if you take EPO and you come back or you want to come back or there's rumblings of coming back, I think of like Johannes Duet, um, after he got caught the first time, the first right. time so after he's Sochi. An Austrian, uh, yes. He was an Austrian World Cup skier. He was an Austrian World Cup skier and he actually finished third in the Tour de Ski one year. And he wanted to come back after his ban in 2014, the Olympic season where he got caught for doping, EPO use. And he would, there was major blowback from pretty much all the athletes I talked with. It's like, you're not welcome back. We never want to see you back on the start line again. And the reason for that is athletes themselves know the difference between when people are cheating with intent and then a mistake was made. That said, even when mistakes are made, we have to take responsibility for our own actions. And Therese's ban, in my humble opinion, was quite severe <laughs> i think it was insanely severe to miss both the world championships and the olympics for for using yeah. the wrong wrong cream but that's my own personal opinion sure had it been one year for example that's 100 percent reasonable and relevant because like i said if you get caught with an anabolic steroid even trace amounts and you let somebody like that off completely even when it wasn't their fault and I feel really sorry for her and man, it, it's been, it been, I know how hard it's been on Teresa and, and everyone around her. Uh, that said, you can't, you, you can't get off just with nothing, sadly, because that's the world we live in because people would use that as precedent to, to try and hide things. So that's my opinion on that. Teresa's welcome back. Russians that use EPO and then come back to the starting line are not well received and athletes like some Austrians in the past that have been caught with, EPO definitely not welcome back with open arms. Uh, athletes themselves know the difference. Well, I, I see a question here, but again, you if there's something that's popping out that you want to... So I got an email from Dave and it's a, 
a great question. Very concise. These are the ones we like to have. Can a skier win the overall World Cup without doing the tour? Or are there too many points at stake? And here's the reality. If you don't do the tour to ski and you want to be in the hunt for the overall World Cup, you are going to have to have an absolutely ridiculous season to have a chance to win. And that said, honestly, in modern skiing, while not impossible, it is essentially impossible without doing the, doing the tour to ski. This year, we have two tours because you have that Scandinavian tour that also has a crazy amount of points. So perhaps that would, this year could be a year you could skip the tour and still win if you just dominate everything. But really, that's that ship has sailed because Bolshinov and, and Klebo are so, are so far ahead and Ustigov. So essentially, you can't. But um, I'll just use one little anecdote for Dave. Last year, Teresa Johag won every single distance event she started except for one distance race. And that was in Quebec where she got out sprinted by Stina Nielsen, where she finished second in one of the stages in the mini tour there. And she did not win the overall World Cup. So <laughs> when you do not lose a single distance race all season long, but you do not show up for the tour to ski, it's still not enough to win. So while mathematically can be can could be possible or probability speaking, if we want to get into the weeds on statistics, you probably could. But it's never been done, and I can't see it being done anytime soon. And let's just uh, to clarify: it's is it, is it double points for the win? No, it's four times the points for the win. So essentially, if you win the Tour de Ski and you win pretty much every stage, it's fifty points a stage, and then four times the points. So you get four hundred points to win the Tour de Ski, and then you get fifty points. A normal World Cup gives you a normal World Cup win. Sorry, gives you one hundred points, and in the Tour de Ski a win gives you 50 points. So if you think about this year where you had seven stages, if you won all seven stages and the overall, then you would be 750 points in your back pocket. And if you were an athlete that stayed home while somebody took on 750 points, that's too much That's too much of a gap to make up. And that's why you've seen Dario over the years win, tour, uh, win overall World Cups by just dominating the Tour de Ski, winning a lot of stages and then winning the overall. And really the the World Cup was essentially sealed after those seasons. Also, Martin Yonsu Sunbe, he did the exact same thing. He would win the Tour de Ski, win some races within the Tour de Ski, win obviously individual World Cups as well. But that World Cup, that sorry, that Tour de Ski victory, those 400 points at the end, plus all the points he's amassed, those half points he's amassed throughout the whole competition, really made for for the fact or the reality, sorry, that Martin Yonsu Sunbe was untouchable for the race for the globe. So I guess a quick follow-up question, and I haven't looked at the start list yet for this weekend. It's a distance weekend, and I believe it's a it's a interval start and then a pursuit based on those results on Sunday. So interval start Saturday, pursuit on Sunday, correct? Yes. Old style pursuit, it's gonna be awesome. I'm actually yeah, really pumped about cool. this. Oh yeah, it's it's a great event and I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> It would mean if you're accruing all of these points, you know, to kind of just drill down a little bit further into Dave's question, you, you acquire or accrue a ton of points at the Tour de Ski, you have the luxury of skipping a weekend here and there to recover, maybe sharpen the fitness a little bit, and then jump back into the fray. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You can do that. And on the other thing, Jason, on the other side, the other thing that doesn't make sense, on the other side... If you look what happened, you had a World Cup weekend. We talked a little bit about it now This in the last episodes, if you want to go back and listen to it. But Dresden is just one week after the Tour de Ski. And there were some big names that have had good skate sprints in the past that were not present. Ustigov comes to mind. He didn't show up. He's recovering from the Tour de Ski. 
and six day turnaround for a city sprint even though he has won skate sprints before is just too tight and he stayed home Bolshinov hasn't been as strong in skate sprints other than the tour de ski i know he was great there but in general he hasn't been as strong as ustigov for example he stays home to rest Klebo came down with a little bit of a cold a head cold so he couldn't go to dresden either he was planning on going to dresden just for the individual sprint because it really irks him that he is behind now in the overall world cup and he's used to having that yellow on his chest so i think it's going to be a little weird when he shows up in nova mesto with just a normal start number <laughs> uh here here's another question from um a listener in vermont uh how do elite cross-country skiers maintain training volume do they during the winter with all the racing uh and they follow with it seems the best cross-country skiers tend to disappear for a few weeks midwinter kind of like we were just talking about and perform a lot of easy volume is this true that is absolutely true especially true when it comes to championships if you want to talk about peak performance and how cross-country skiers get themselves ready for a peak performance you have to start thinking about things as if uh, think about adaption if you're racing week in, week out, and you're training, the the best in the world are training anywhere from 12 to 16, 17 hours a week. And when you're traveling twice a week to different venues, plus the driving from the airport and everything like that, that's pretty much all you can get in. Sometimes in November, athletes will go up to about 20 hours, but that's when their travel days are just jumping in the car and driving a couple hours. Then you can get over 20 hours. But on the World Cup, when you're traveling from Lillehammer and then the next weekend's Davos and then the weekend after that is Planitza and that, that sort of thing, you're, you're looking at that range. Now, that means if you have a championship coming up and you just are racing week in, week out and having it, cut, let's just say, average 15 hours a week of training, that is not going to help you peak because after after a month, six weeks, you're adapted to that sort of training. And guess what? You are you could be racing at a very high level, but you're not going to get any boost if you just keep doing the exact same thing. So what athletes do, a lot of athletes use altitude, of course, because <laughs> the reason why anybody goes to altitude, this wasn't really part of the question, but who doesn't love a good tangent, right? <laughs> the reason, a, yeah, it's one of my flaws. I love a tangent. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, so before a championship, you see a lot of athletes and teams head up to higher altitude. And what's defined as high altitude in cross-country skiing is around 2,000 meters. We're not talking 4,000 meters. They're not traveling to Nepal, to Nepal, but they're traveling up into the Alps where they're living high and training high for their easy training. So why are they doing that? They're trying to get a blood plasma boost, which just means getting more blood in their in their bodies uh they want to have a different style of adaption they want to create more red blood cells red blood cells are what carry oxygen to working muscles and more oxygen to muscles mean you are able to move a lot faster than your competitors that's why people do it but the training itself that they're doing up there is also very different from that week in week out midweek intervals doing an interval on wednesday racing saturday sunday traveling on sunday or monday having an easier day and then just having this groundhog day or groundhog week thing that that world cup athletes do week in week out so they get away from that they they put their body through stress in a totally different way a really great way to do that is long slow distance we're talking like some of the super dorks of running or anything like that like arthur lydiard yeah we're going there way back in the days long slow distance that's what these athletes are doing at these training camps they're training anywhere from 22 26 hours a week mostly longer slower skis it's breaking that cycle of that racing that high intensity you your body has to go back learn how to be under sorry god getting stressed you're putting your body under a different type of stress that it's not used to all while doing this at altitude and after that 10 days out from a championship 
they change things again and you're into a taper period and then they come to do a championship and they're rip run ready to go so if you don't have those periods in the winter that you get away and do those training sessions which are longer having those weeks between 20 to 25 hours 26 hours Teresa probably around 27 28 honestly uh you're your performance will just go down and you see that a lot i mean who hasn't heard of the christmas star right you know you see a lot of athletes that are ripping before christmas and then they just kind of fade to nothing and by late january you don't really see them much anymore and then they're just pack filled by february out and i think a lot of that can have to do with the fact that they have a winning formula that's working in november december and they just keep trying to rip that every week and guess what happens they get slower their body adapts and then you're not getting that same boost you're not getting that same adaption and and the velocity slows down okay one other, like quick follow up on that like Say you're not moving in the direction of, you know, um, volume at low intensity, but you're trying to figure out like how to incorporate more intensity and, you know, the traditional, I guess the, the, the traditional look of this might be like four to five minute intervals. Okay. Like VO2 max intervals. Yeah. and would an athlete maybe say, okay, I've got to do, you know, cause, and, and there was this great article that Adam St. Pierre, who's a coach based out of Boulder, Colorado kind of broke down for us earlier this year, but it had to do with breaking down some training where these world cup courses and even say tougher junior national qualifier course courses or junior national courses here in the U S and probably Canada. Um, you know, it's like a super hard 40 to 60 second effort and then very limited recovery and then you're on it again. And I think of like a course in like Camor where it's like you're working super hard. You've got super steep technical downhills that do not provide a ton of recovery and you're on the gas again. You know, what might an athlete do in that situation where they're trying to build up that capacity of like super hard short efforts and you know, lack of recovery and boom on it again. Well, I mean, this is now we're going to get real in the weeds and I'm going to try not to, but uh, it is. Okay, it is no, but no, 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 that's great. But it is a great question. The, re- the reality is if you want to increase your capacity, <laughs> it's not going to happen overnight. If you're three minutes down in a 10 K or three minutes down in a 15 K and you're hoping to find two minutes and it's already the race season has happened and you're, you're off to the races. It's not, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry, then you just need luck. And then you might as well just buy a lottery ticket because your chances of increasing your capacity from being three and a half, four minutes back and then all of a sudden being like consistently three and a half, four minutes back, not like you had bad skis and you're four minutes back. I'm saying like, you're just not, you're just not in the game. And then going like, okay, I, I have two months. I want to really do it for world juniors or something. It's like, sorry, it's too late. You're not going to do it. That's not how this thing works. You could get lucky. Maybe you just hope for uh, rub ski conditions and you have an amazing pair of rub skis. Then there, then you could have a great, <laughs> great race, but no one wants to do that. It takes a long time to build up that, that capacity. And the reality is the best way to train to get better capacity is like you said, yeah, for sure. You have to work at, in, um, time and zone and and working on those those uh lactate tolerance intervals in interspersed with vo2 max style intervals like you were saying those four to five minuteers then uh you know everything in between but here's a little tip if you 
in the ski season, what Norwegians do a lot, and not just Norwegians, but other athletes in Scandinavia. And I didn't really do this in my career, and I don't really know why, because it makes a lot of sense to me now that I see and I've had chats with the best in the world. They, they use a treadmill. They do running intensity on the treadmill. Those VO2 max intervals you're talking about, those four-minute intervals, those five-minute intervals, and they use a treadmill. They crank it up to 10.5%. And they just smash. And when we say 10, 10 and a half percent, we're talking incline. Incline. Yes. On a treadmill. And then they would just do a classic interval session, five times, five minutes, six times, four minutes, two minutes rest, zone four. So that means 90% of your max capacity or 90% of your max heart rate, let's say, if you just want to be simple, we won't get all into the lactates and everything like that, but about 90%, 92% of your max heart rate. And guess what? When you think about what we do in cross-country skiing, a lot of our intervals are condition-dependent. Like you said yourself, course-dependent. It's one thing if you live in Camor and you just train in Camor every single day and that's all you ever do. But you know what? People have races and they travel around and the conditions are different. And some days it's lightning fast and your heart rate never gets higher than zone three, but you feel like you're going all out. But, you know, so athletes like Teresa Johug being a big one here or... Or someone like Ingveld Flugstad Osberg, or the men Didrik Tonseth. I know he's not a great example now since he's been bad lately, but Kleibo too, Johannes, does this a lot. A lot of the Norwegians, I would say all the Norwegians, they use a running treadmill throughout the winter. And they the reason being is what it was explained to me, and it makes perfect sense, is just time in zone. Go out and do five times five minutes on an undulating course, on a race course with your heart rate monitor, and think that you go, okay, I'm going zone four. And then go through the file on your computer with your coach and start adding up how many minutes you're actually in zone four. On a running treadmill, if you're warmed up and you start blast, like not blasting, because it's not all out, it's not to puke, right? It's not, you're not going like crazy hard, but you start looking, if you're trying to hit that 88 to 92% of your max heart rate, and if you're doing it with 10.5% incline at the appropriate speed, <laughs> I mean, you're going to have almost every single second of that session in zone. And that helps that helps increase your capacity. That's the reality. Just to clarify on that, are you talking about, you know, it's a running treadmill at 10%? Yes, running treadmill. And they're running yep. or are they on roller skis? They're running. No, no, they're running. Gotcha. They're running. The reason why you do it at 10% or 10.5%, of course, is that the speed is fairly low. So it's not any pounding on your legs whatsoever. You know what I mean? A runner like Didrik that can run under 30 minutes for 10K, if he was going to do it on a flat treadmill, I mean, he's he, to get that sort of capacity work, he's going to be running 250 kilometers, two minutes, 50 second kilometers. And that would just smash and destroy his legs. But if you put that incline very steep, it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't have that, like that load on your legs, that, that smashing of the legs, if you know what I mean. So you actually don't, you, while it's hard at the time, and definitely hard mentally once you get off i mean later that day your your legs feel fine they're not they're not just crushed by the force of you like exerting so much downward pressure to go follow on a treadmill at two minutes and 50 seconds a kilometer if you know what i'm saying another question that anything popping out for you yeah i have a good question okay. uh Craig Pepin, or Craig Pepin, I don't know if he's from Quebec or, or not, but uh, Pepin, when I see P-E-P-I-N, <laughs> I think Pepin. Uh, I have a question about interval start races, he asks. How important is catching a ride? How much difference can it make? Is this something that athletes look for before the start? Uh, uh, and under what conditions or course profile or athlete match can it make the biggest difference? 
And this is really interesting to me because guess what? It can make a huge difference. And is it something that athletes look at before the start? Absolutely. And when the rules changed, where athletes themselves or the coaches at the coaches meeting can pick their start based mm -hmm. on where they are in the distance overall cup rankings, the World Cup rankings. Uh, you've seen teams, Norway, a Alex has done this a ton, going over the World Cup overall, uh, sorry, distance overall, seeing where he is. Alex, some years, has been quite high up there, top three in the distance cup, meaning that he can pick fairly late in the game, seeing where people go, knowing what kind of course it is, being like, oh, it's a 15K classic on a fairly hard course. I would love to catch a ride from someone like Didrik, who would, might not have the same distance cup points as Alex. So Didrik might have to pick earlier, or Didrik's coach is picking early because no athletes are at the coaches' meetings. But... This is something that tactically has been addressed hugely and discussed a lot because you having a back, having some help to break the win for a couple laps makes a huge, huge difference. It, it can, but again, you have to be in shape enough to be able to follow that ride when it comes, and that's no guarantee. One other thing with this is can, if you're wanting to have a good result, and I define like good result on the World Cup as if you're Alex or if you're really a contender, you know, that's top 10, right? Uh, if you want to be around top 10, a ride can make a big difference. If you want to have the best race of your career and you've never been in the points before, but you're closing in on the points, you're an athlete that's been, the points is top 30, sorry, <laughs> uh, that, that scores World Cup points. But if you're 40th, 45th, and you're like, man, I just want to get into that top 30, a ride can make a big difference. You're not going to have you're not going to be able to pick your start because you won't be in the top 15 in the overall distance cup rankings if th that's where you lie. So that's more comes down to chance, uh, whether or not you'll get the ride you're looking for. But if you want to win an individual start competition, guess what? Like, by and large, you have to do this work on your own. Yeah, you can have a help for one lap. That can happen. But at the end of the day, if you're looking to win the individual start race, it is a time trial. And like in cycling, if you want to win time trials, you have to be strong enough to set the pace yourself. So a ride can help you, but I'm not going to say week in, week out, it helps you win. If you look at if you look at what Ivo Niskanen did in Kusumo earlier this year in an individual start race, he just took it out hard, kept that pace the whole time, ended up winning by 10 seconds, and there was no help from rides. He did that on his own. So it can help you get a good result, but it might not help you win. Here's a question like back when you were racing and did you use a heart rate monitor to collect in a GPS watch to collect data when you were act, you know, actively racing on the on World Cup race? <laughs> I never did. Personally, I never did. I would take my watch off and I wouldn't race with a watch. The reason being, I don't want to know. I didn't want to. I'm superstitious. I played too much hockey in my life. Uh, and, and to be honest, for my mental, to be present, to stay present, it was really important to me that I didn't have a heart rate monitor that I could look down and see. If I'm hurting on an uphill and it's an individual start race, I don't want to look down and see my heart rate's only 185 when my max heart rate's 207, even though I feel like I'm dying. You know what I mean? Because that'll, sure. that'll just bum me out and discourage me. Likewise, I don't want to, even if I'm having a great day, if I'm three... If I'm at the top of the first kind of big climb at about 2K into Kusumo, maybe my heart rate would be 199 there after 2K. And if I looked down on that and saw that I'm at 199, I would start having a panic attack going like, am I going to be able to keep up this sort of exertion for 34 minutes? And those are thoughts I just didn't want. I wanted to focus on my technique, focus on my process. So I didn't even, I, sorry, I didn't even race with the watch, which is pretty interesting. A lot of athletes do though. 
a lot of yeah, athletes that's, do. That was going to be my question because you think like in cycling, you know, people yeah, power are, meters, yeah, yeah, slaves to the to the power, power meters. Meter. So, um, yeah, conversely, like, did you ever have that discussion with folks who are not necessarily slaves to the watch, but they wanted that data? Yeah, of course. Oh, absolutely. A lot of athletes get totally sucked into the vortex of the data, but the only data that really matters is your results page, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Oh, you hit a new max heart rate. Whoopity do. Are you 57th? Like, what does that mean? I mean, you know, but, but here's what I will say. Every single time trial I've ever done in my whole life, test race, I used a heart rate monitor. Every single interval session, my whole career, I used, I used a heart rate monitor. I did a ton of lactate testing. So many lactates throughout my career. We followed up really, really closely, but it was to the point that I felt and our team behind us felt that when we came to the races, you're ready. And we have all this data backing up the fact that you you should be ready. And then it's about clearing your mind, especially me, I'm neurotic. So I, I can get really sucked into the, the data and everything like that, like just dork out. And, and it takes energy to dork out. And cross-country skiing, sadly, isn't running. You're not on a 400-meter track. And it is most certainly not cycling where you can just hit one of those big climbs in the Alps. And if your team can set a tempo of 400 watts up these climbs, you can be pretty assured that no one's going to attack off that that sort of wattage. Uh, Cross-country skiing is not like that. Like we talked about with with conditions. If it dumps 30 centimeters of snow and it goes up to plus three and they groom it, but it's just soft and soupy and a nasty mess... It, that can have a huge effect on that quote-unquote data you're collecting, your heart rate data. Likewise, if it's minus two and it hasn't snowed in six weeks and it's just totally transformed bullet-fast snow, it, it, really, like what data is it that you're collecting on the race day? So I'd be really careful to suggest to young athletes that race with the heart rate monitor, record all your data. That's what training's for. And you only race, if you're a junior, you're not even racing this much. Maybe you're racing 20 times a year, 20 20, 25 times a year. If you're, if you're a senior and you're a World Cup all-rounder, maybe you're racing 35, 40 times a year. But how many interval sessions are you doing outside of that? Like a ton, right? How many test races are you doing? That's the, those are the data points that are really going to matter. So, But I see a lot of athletes race with heart rate monitors uh, and record their data. I also know that some of the best skiers in the world have never done that. They might race with a watch, but it's just there because they're sponsored. They don't press start. A lot of athletes, like that, some of the best athletes in the world throughout their whole careers and continually do that. It looks like they're racing with a heart rate monitor, but there's no start on that. It's just the time of the day and they're not looking at it whatsoever just because they're getting paid. Okay, last question I want to ask here, if that works for you. And it's pretty basic, but it's kind of interesting. So um, this is a gentleman, Sanjay from Amherst, Mass., and he asked a bunch of questions about the how, how the World Cup is organized, say, skiathlons, skate, you know, it, it's, it's classic first, then skate, uh, relays, where it's the two skate legs are third and fourth. Um, and up until uh, Canmore, which will be uh, the World Cups in Canmore final weekend in March, there will finally be, I think it's the last race of the season on a Sunday, will be a mixed relay. Is that the first ever? It is the, the first ever. It is the first ever mixed relay. Absolutely. Okay. So there'll be a mixed relay. So they are sort of uh, finally shattering that little glass ceiling, I suppose, and mixing, mixing up a bit. But my question is, or kind of piggybacking on Sanjay's questions, 
The two themes that he notes are, why are races that involve skating and classic, meaning the relays really, or the skiathlon, why don't they have classic as the decisive leg? That is a good question. That is a really good question. With the relays, I, I'm not sure I can answer that because I agree. It would be so fun to, to have some relays that start with two skate skate legs and then finish with two classic legs. Uh, with the skiathlon, I know why they don't have skiathlons that finish with with classic second and that being if you think of the men's which is 15 kilometers of classic and then 15 kilometers of skating if you just extrapolate that it takes 35 odd minutes to classic 15k 35 37 minutes if you started with skating if you think about what happens with the conditions and a lot of these skiathlon courses have tracks just to the side they're using the same loops especially when you start thinking about how much um with with the filming and the camera production that whole thing uh they're really trying to maximize that not have two loops all over the place loops are closed the stadium's closed once the race is going people cannot test their equipment and if you had a classic race that went 40 minutes after the start a lot can change at 1.30 in the afternoon in the Dolomites if it's snowing or if it's not. And it would just be just a utter disaster. Not every weekend. I mean, if you're in Camor and it's absolutely perfect conditions and minus five and artificial snow, then you're, yeah, you just put on some, yeah, put on some blue extra and off you go. But, but um, on the World Cup, as you've seen in the conditions, it's rarely good conditions. Uh, it's very challenging conditions often. And to not be able to test your classic skis for 40 minutes and then jump onto a classic skis while being tired and all that. Ugh, it would just be, there was just be too much blowback. There was a lot of blowback when the pursuit was getting going and, and a lot of the coaching input and the input through fist was like, don't even, don't even try and mess around with this. And uh, quite frankly, while I'm sad because I was a stronger classic skier <laughs> and it would have been great to finish. Um, with classic, uh, it was the right call, and that's the reason why you don't see that. But in, but in the relay, it's a good it's a good question. And then with the mixed relay, two things with that: one, really exciting, it's going to be awesome. I'm glad they're going to try this out. I am so sad that they are doing this as the last race of the World Cup season. The World Cup overall sealed. There's no points on the line. There's nothing there. Like people are tired. They're in Canada. They're thinking about going home to Europe or wherever they're going after that. Yeah, they maybe have maybe have a brewski or two after after the, the last uh, individual race. And quite frankly, I don't think you're going to find that many athletes that are really stoked and excited to go out and do a mixed relay as the last race of the World Cup Tour. So it would have been really cool if they would have had that mixed relay earlier in the season because having it as the last race in Canada, I, man, it's... Uh, they tried that. They tried that in the past in Falun. There used to be the last race of the season was the four by ten k for men and the four by five k for women uh, Sunday in Falun some weekends. And uh, you can go back and check out some of those stats or some of right. those races. People aren't exactly. It's not the World Championships. People are a little tired, and you can probably guess why. Okay, I bet you the Canadians and the Americans are going to be fired up for that yeah i hope so i the americans especially i think the canadians are in tough in that competition if i'm being perfectly honest uh the americans though would have a great it's a great event for a team like the u.s so be really fun to see them uh i mean they're the, the women's side of things in the u.s it's fun every single weekend and the men like we've talked about Dresden had some some good highlights the sprint the sprint guys have been doing well and and you know guys like eric bjornson can really pop a good uh, distance race off once in a while so yeah no for sure it could be a great could be a great little event for the mixed relay for the u.s i'm thinking schumacher 
I hate to say yeah. that, and maybe I'll edit that out because I do. Not, I do yeah, I do not, don't want to be part of the industrial complex that puts pressure on young kids. But that kid seems to be firing. Oh yeah, no, but you know what? All the juniors. Yeah. I mean, we. I would love to just do a podcast on the American development pipeline because they win the World Junior Relay last year, yeah. which was just incredible. And you're seeing athletes that are disappointed when they're coming seventh. They're disappointed when they're coming like in the top 10. Like that's not what they came to the world juniors for. I'm like, right. Oh my right. God, this is crazy. And then the women are second in the, in the, uh, in the world junior relay. And you look at someone like Swerble at us nationals this year. Yeah. That is, that is awesome. And that is so awesome. And you have, yeah, you have Schumacher, you have like, uh, Ben Ogden. There's a lot of, a lot of really yeah. exciting. I mean, I don't want to leave anyone out, but there's a lot of really exciting young American men that are coming online and you just have to hope that they can translate that those great world junior results and those world junior experiences into, into the senior level. We've seen little bit already scoring points already as a first year senior or even as a junior like we saw in dresden like yeah, this is a this is great this is an absolutely phenomenal place to start your senior career or become soon start your senior career so that's great and you know what the college system in the u.s has been so is so much better now than it was when i was younger the college system when I was a young senior was where you went to party and your ski career was over. Let's be perfectly honest. No one came out of the college. No one came out of NCAA and did shit in the World Cup uh, back in my days. Like we're talking, this is really back in the days now, but like 17, 18 years ago, that didn't happen. And now the, the college programs have a much better track record, better coaching. You've got some guys, I don't want to sing praises and leave other guys out, but you have some guys that I, I actually grew up racing with uh, in, on the Noram circuit and also on the World Cup tour and everything. And they really have a good attitude. They know they know what they're doing and they've been able to really deliver some great performances, not just in college, but beyond. And they're doing an amazing job with some of the bigger programs in in the u.s colleges so i think that's really exciting too I, it, you don't have to choose now i think you really can look at sophie caldwell i mean that's a great story she's she's yes, uh, yeah. she, she, has, she has a dartmouth degree and crushing it on the world cup i mean what's not to love about that <laughs> and that then you can do it and you nice can do husband. it and yeah and simmy has almost a middlebury degree yeah i'm calling you out finish that shit and he also kills it on the world cup so he pretty much went to college the whole time <laughs> so so you know you have guys now that you can look to the young athletes can look to as uh, as inspiration if they if they so choose or if they feel as though they want to continue their education which is so cool because back in my days it was not the case it would it just wasn't done it wasn't impossible and quite frankly the college programs weren't set up for that they they didn't have they didn't have that in them yeah, and there's a couple of Canadian. I think there's a Canadian at Utah and a Canadian at Harvard right now that are. Yeah, there is Remy Drolet. Oh, dude, he's at Harvard, and I'm really excited to to meet him at World Juniors this year because, like, he was seventh last year at World Juniors. He has one more year of juniors, and he is brilliant. Wants to take theoretical physics, and also wants to be one of the world's best ski racers. And I'm like, this is going to be really interesting if you can pull this off. But if any, but if anybody can and anyone has the discipline, it's Remy and Sam Hendry at, um, at Utah. Uh, Utah's got a great program. Uh, their coach there is definitely somebody that I think have, I've, I would have a lot of trust in, in, uh, in his expertise. And I think he can really, 
lead uh, leads them in a good direction. But you know, Vermont, Middlebury, uh, Dartmouth. There, there's a lot of programs out there that have great programs. I mean, you had Dave Stewart at DU for a long time that uh, I have a lot of respect for. So the, there's a that they are definitely a lot of coaches now that that. Uh, they really have a longer term outlook and for the athletes. And you also have athletes coming to college now that, that can come right out and say like, I want to be a world cup skier. Whereas, whereas before, like if you went to NCAA, it's like, you want to, you're not going to be, it's not, I want to be like, forget it. Just, just forget about it that you're going to lose four years of good training. And then you'll race senior for a couple of years and that's it or not senior, but you'll race a couple of years after college. And those four or five years you lost on, on the likes of Tobias Anger or, or uh, Furla still or whatever, like you're not making it up. Okay. Uh, Devin, thanks for your time and good luck studying tonight. Yeah. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you and please keep sending us your questions. We will try our best to get back to you in a timely p- manner and we'll hopefully do a few more of these mailbag questions throughout the season, but we will come back to people and I will, my news resolution, just kidding. I don't make news resolutions. I'm sorry, <laughs> but uh, I will try my best to, to respond to some of the questions, if not all of them as they come in. So please keep sending them. This is how this, this is how we can make this uh, little project as best as it can. Um, so we're, we're here to help. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Devin Kershaw show. And as always, if you have any questions, send them to Devin at fasterskeeter.com D E V O N at fasterskeeter.com or info at fasterskeeter.com. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 